Hello, I'm Paige and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. Happy New Year to our listeners and welcome back. Uh, what a year it's been so far. Where to begin? Okay, so we can start with vaccine policy, which is fast becoming a political crisis in some countries. Uh, Wolfgang, you've been looking at Germany and Italy. Susanna, you've been looking at what's happening in France. Uh, Wolfgang, let's start with Germany. What is happening right now with regards to the vaccine policy and how will it impact the German election cycle? The SPD, the um, Angela Merkel's coalition partner, have identified vaccine policy as, a, as an election campaign theme. Interestingly, that happened in Italy too with Matteo Renzi in a different way. But what happened in Germany was that the SPD has produced a four-page list of questions, loaded questions. I mean, they're not really questions. They are attacks on the health minister asking him, you know, why did we not buy enough vaccines? Why did we do this through the EU? Has the EU been informed that there may not be enough vaccines? Uh, when did we know it? And that kind of tone, which usually suggests, you know, it's more, it's more like an inquisition than, <laughs> than a genuine attempt to find out what happened. Um, Merkel defended uh, the, the policy, so did the, the health minister Spahn. He said, we decided consciously to do an EU, an EU approach because you know, not all countries had the ability. And if we had gotten hold of all the vaccines and other, at the expense of others, there would have been mayhem, political mayhem in the EU. And they defended the decision to do the EU uh, approach. We should recall the European health ministers decided on a joint procurement strategy uh, about six months ago, uh, so this this was the this was the decision taken back then, and the Commission then uh, started to order vaccines from different manufacturers. At the time, it wasn't clear which vaccination would result in a positive test. <laughs> And uh, it turned out that two vaccinations had a positive test, the German BioNTech Pfizer and the American Moderna, and subsequently also the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines. But the EU had not secured enough of those, especially of the BioNTech Pfizer uh, vaccination to mm -hmm. have enough for the entire EU population. Now, what happened in Germany is that uh, Merkel said, yes, it's true that we uh, had an approach. And as a result of that, we also agreed to pay some of these vaccines for the poorer EU countries. So as a result, there will be less of us than we would normally have been able to secure if we had acted alone. Mm -hmm. Now, that is basically a political statement because we're saying because we prioritized the European Union over a national thing, which you know we think generally is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could say, and her, you know, several Prime Ministers, uh, including Marco Söder, the Bavarian Prime Minister, said, look, I mean, you also have to look at the national uh, level. People might die as a result of that policy yeah. because of if they get the vaccination too late. So politicians have realized this week, and this has been the week where this started, that vaccination has become an issue of absolutely high political priority. It is the big political issue of our time because, you know, opposition parties that are doing badly, like Renzi in Italy and the SPD in Germany, it's no accident that they're all struggling parties, have discovered vaccination to be a very uh, potentially lucrative political theme for them. Yeah. And if they can make the case convincingly that people die as a result of, of of government procurement policies or the way they've organized the, the vaccines. And, you know, in Germany, we've had additional issues with the states uh, not being able to uh, roll out the vaccines in the, in, the, in the right speed. 
they have a case to be made. Now, in Italy, it's quite interesting where Matteo Renzi, he's the you know former prime minister. He uh, is also the uh, the chairman of a small uh, splinter party called Italia Viva, which is split off from the Partito Democratico, the socialists. And Renzi has made a number of demands on uh, in respect of the recovery fund, which is the official reason why he's now challenging the government and threatening to walk out. But he also made the 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 demands to have to start the vaccination program with the teachers. That is a very unusual demand to make, but it, you can see in mean, his party is you can see the political logic of that for him. His party is struggling in the polls. He's been at three percent. He's a very unpopular man. I mean, his premiership <laughs> was a uh, shall we put this as a rather eccentric period uh, of, of <laughs> politics in Italy, and it ended with a with a disaster of a referendum that he lost on constitutional reform. And he is a very unpopular man, but he also and we have to say, and even I know him, I'm actually know him. He is a man of great political instincts, mm-hmm. and he's got a political killer instinct. Um, and you know, he has discovered, as I just said, the ESPD vaccination as an issue. And if you only have three percent of the votes, and you know, your goal is not to find to gain a majority, that won't be, that's out of his reach. But he could, you know, double double that or triple that. Yeah. And you know, going for the teachers is probably not a bad idea because he not only gets the votes of the teachers, uh, but also of all the parents uh, who will, will <laughs> exactly. be have only too happy to have the children back in school. If that is an on offer. If you know you have four or five parties, and if one serious party offers that, while others don't, we may well pick up some votes. Uh, so that is a clever strategy and puts the government on the defensive. The school issue is a big one in Italy. The, they have been struggling to reopen the school. They're huge. It's a huge controversy. Yeah. In Germany, the schools uh, are still closed. Most <sighs> mostly, they they've only opened them for the final year for the preparation for their. High school diploma, the the abitur, uh, but most most school classes are are at home. So Germany doesn't have that particular problem right now. But in both countries, vaccination has become a big political issue. Yeah, actually, um, Susanna, I wanted to talk to you about France as well because I was reading that. France had been considering a similar plan. They were going to vaccinate the teachers first and then decided against it and went with, I think it's the over 75. So what are you seeing in France right now in terms of its vaccination strategy? Are they finally getting it together? I mean, I'm waiting anxiously here in Paris for my own chance, but uh, I guess the question is how has their policy shifted over the past couple of weeks and and what kind of response are we seeing to criticism that it's going too slowly? Okay, before I go into the story uh, of and the narrative of France, I would just like to point out a more general point. And I think one of those, the underlying assumptions in all of the countries is that behind the vaccine, that the vaccine is actually effective. Uh, and that is a question for, for political, for to be a political capital it has to be effective. And I think this is something that has been has to be tested. We don't know yet. We don't know. I mean, there. I don't want to go into scary mongering, but there are two factors. You could see it on both sides. One is uh, what if the new strains are not covered by it? What if people get actually the virus by going to these centers and getting vaccinated? All these things, the governments have to be ready to have answers for that. And if you're one of those who get a virus, are you one of the 5% for which the vaccine didn't work? 
that's fine if you only have a few of them, but if you have many of them, then uh, the question of effectiveness of the strategy will come to the forefront. And the government has to prepare for the second large. What is happening in this kind of scenario? How do they explain that? The second thing is, um, what if spring comes along and then all of the vaccines that we ordered no longer are needed because the, vaccine, the, the virus itself kind of deflates? The, that is a scenario that reminds maybe a little bit of the of a vaccine strategy that they used with the swine flu, where they ordered a lot of um, vaccines and in the end they didn't use it. Not either because people didn't want to get the jab or because the whole virus sort of slowed down and because people got really uh, a little bit suspicious of what's going on as well. Mm-hmm. So these are contributing factors behind that. So going back to France, France has a history of vaccine sort of... Uh, being skeptical about vaccines uh, for quite some time. Um, we've seen the statistics, only 40% of the French really wanted to get yeah. vaccinated, which is really very low in comparison to other mm. EU countries uh, and even worldwide. The, the government chose in December as a strategy to go slow on mm. the vaccination rollout. That was fine until the moment uh, France realized that everyone else was really accelerating and going really yeah. fast at the same time as there were was a discovery of new strand, strains of the virus, which turned out to be much more contagious. And I think that changed over the weekend. All of a sudden, everything, the whole narrative changed in France. Yep. So yesterday, they tried to, to catch up with that in terms of communication and laid out the plan, how we're going to roll out, what sort of vaccines we are buying when, month by month, all the breakdown. Um, but this is still hypothetical. Still, it's the plan. Uh, the question then will be in terms of implementation, where are the errors? Where are, Where is the logistics? Can they actually deliver all the, the 32,000 they have to um, vaccinate now daily in order to get to the target rate of 1 million by the end of the month. So this is kind of a lot. And um, there again, you could say it opens the possibility of holding the government accountable for, uh, because now they clearly assume a responsibility for more detailed rollout. Yeah. Well, you see it too. I definitely understand what you mean by narratives changing. I mean, you see it even in uh, the prime minister, Jean Castex. At first he was saying, no, I'm not going to take the vaccination first. I'm not because that would kind of be like jumping in the line, butting in the queue. Um, and then now yesterday he's saying, yeah, he's going to get the vaccine on television to kind of encourage people to do it themselves and and show that it's safe. Uh, and we're seeing too now, like on Twitter this morning, uh, they're saying that the percentage of French people who now want the vaccine has gone up by 10 percentage points. So the narrative is shifting. I think it's interesting that you mentioned now that France sees other people are doing it, that suddenly the French want in on it. I don't want to roast them too hard, but I would definitely agree with that assessment um, that more people are starting to come around to the idea. And now it's going to fall to, you know, the local governments to make sure it's done and ensure like in Germany that they have the cold storage facilities and things like that. Um, How do you think this is going to play out for Macron? Do you think he's going to be able to handle something like this or is it going to be, I don't know. I don't want to say another failed promise because maybe we're a little bit too hard on him sometimes, but it seems like it falls to him now to make sure this actually happens. And yeah, I'm just curious how you think he's going to be able to, to manage such a massive undertaking. Um, I mean, 
he's clearly in charge in terms of um, he was heading the weekly meetings in the cabinet with the cabinet on the strategy. So his strategy to come out in public being uh, saying this is outrageous, this looks looks like a family promenade rather than <laughs> <laughs> what it should be like, like a real speedy uh, response, effective response, which would be much more in line with what Macron would like to see. Um, and on the sa- at the same time, they seem to actually change the the strategy. So Macron did his communication bit, and Castex took over to took it on board to explain and present the plan, and no longer leaving it to the uh, virologists um, and the medical staff to do the communication. And I think that's wise. We also see in Ireland that they hired a communication uh, head just for the strategy because if you think about trust what what does trust require it requires a really good communication and preparing for all scenarios um, so that the government is not caught in the cold when something happens and something goes wrong which inevitably it will and i think just to be covered for that we need someone really to think about this and not in terms of not getting stuck in the, the in, in the eventuality of things going on Yeah. Uh, Wolfgang, to return to a point that you made about what's happening in Germany and Italy, I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit on how Germany's strategy might have been shaped by some of the controversy from the very earliest days of the pandemic, um, when it kind of (laughs) shut off exports to other countries of uh, personal protective equipment and took a lot of heat over um, a perceived lack of generosity towards neighbors like Italy. Uh, Do you think in terms like at the EU level, will Germany's strategy ultimately be a good one to kind of be purchasing vaccines for other member states and and giving the impression that it's kind of an all for one, one for all kind of approach? I mean, the, I mean, I, 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 I naturally support this view. I don't often support Angela Merkel, <laughs> so yeah, no, I think that that strategy was right, uh, and it. But it was brought up. One has to look at the, the the background to this. The it didn't start off that way, as you as you said. They they prevented face masks being delivered to Italy, which caused enormous enormous um, um, anger anger in Rome, and um, and it uh, Germany at that point realized that they're having having a problem not only with the eu but also with the eurozone uh, that italy was at that point we, we got all these opinion polls that italy that a majority of italians were certainly opposed to all things european and the germans the german government at that point realized that they have to that they had to act uh, which is which is how the recovery fund came into business because we remember that this this position change of merkel had happened rather suddenly and it was all of a sudden that she and macron announced this this plan and while the the ultimate plan was different from what they had originally announced it was it was basically the the, the foundation for what 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 happened later um uh, the problem the problem with with this strategy is that uh or the the not the problem but if this the strategy is likely to be uh a successful uh, or a, a a blueprint for future you know strategies if it is successful now. So we, we've got to make sure that people, that the politics in Germany doesn't backfire as it may do. I mean, you know, I, 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 I share the same skepticism 
uh, uh, Susanna, about about the complete uh, reliance on vaccination as your only strategy. There are things that can go wrong in a in a in a in a, in a strategy that is hundred percent based on vaccination. Um, uh, uh, Susanna just mentioned mentioned various factors that could that could in, intrude. Uh, but if the strategy of um, you know if there are if the vaccination strategy succeeds, if we have you know secured enough, if the rollout eventually functions so that by the summer uh, there is a kind of um, uh, you know that a sufficient degree in the population is protected and is no longer contagious, so the spread of the virus is reduced uh, by the summer, then um, then that would have been the blueprint. Uh, so the future, you know, future, future uh, vaccine procurement strategies would happen at EU level, not at national level. We would have obviously learned a lot from in terms of procedures. There would have been very different procedures in terms of rollout. There would be border procedures that were not in place before. So, I mean, most things that happened in 2020 were kind of invented on the spot, on the hoof. <laughs> and there is now, you know, this, if this happens again, I, you know, I would assume. Uh, 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 that the EU would would be a, would have a more rational response, but if things go wrong, uh, they are likely to go very wrong. Not only you know for you know especially for the EU itself. Yeah, well, I wonder too if uh, the EU couldn't take some inspiration from the UK. I know that we said we weren't going to discuss the UK much today, but I think they're now uh, deploying the British Army to ensure that vaccines are rolled out to the relief of many. Uh, British people. So I wonder if that might be something that we would see in the future if, if the strategy goes really, truly wrong. Um, the, I, I think that is that is quite possible. I mean, the you know, the, the British NHS being a, being a state system is, is streamlined. I mean, today they, they approved a drug in the vaccination and, and a, a drug in the in the treatment of severe cases. Uh, uh, and it was uh, approved centrally and all hospitals in, in the UK now will use that drug from as of today. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so when when you have an emergency, you you know it is obviously easier to uh, and a centralized system as in the UK, as opposed to, for example, Germany, where it's highly decentralized. Yeah. It's it's much easier to deploy emergency measures, and um, and you know some people in the UK compare the COVID to a war, <laughs> and they they think this this should be some kind of we should use some sort of a war response, and then the, the obviously it's not a big step to use it to the use of the army in that case. Um, and sure, the army has uh, of, uh, the army has infrastructure capabilities that can be used for civilian purposes. We, we, we use the armies in, in all sorts of uh, civilian uh, contexts, like in, in, in emergencies and you know natural disasters, etc. Because the army simply has the kit. In this case, you know, I'm not entirely sure why it is needed, um, because we're dealing with uh, with an infrastructure that can that can ultimately only be supplied through doctors and pharmacies. Uh, we're not sure what the army can do to, to the rollout, except maybe for transportation or some other other purposes where where it's fine to use the army to where there's no alternative. But uh, you know, I, I doubt the EUK the EU is in a in a, in a mood to learn from the UK <laughs> right. after after what happened. I think we also had examples where the army was involved in the testing, mass testing. The question but there was, though, with timing. So the army was there relevant because they needed to do the testing in a very short time period through a couple of days. Yeah. So I think in that sense, it was very clear that the only the only facility that you could use is uh, was the army that could deliver with such a velocity um, yeah. the number of testing that was required. 
I mean, the BBC was saying that it's like the can-do attitude that the army has that's going to improve morale. And I was kind of chuckling at that, that the army might just be sent in to say, we're going to get it done, even if they know, you know, that it's not possible. It might just be a morale boost at this point to use troops. Uh, so I, I just found that funny. I was laughing at that this morning. I thought it's a, it's a good PR for the army as well. Right. Exactly. Just like peacekeeping missions. Yeah. We are there for you. We can do this. Yeah. The trouble with war is that um, you know you can lose them. Uh, obviously, in Britain, that's that's sort of something that uh, is, 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 is there's an experience they at least they don't don't have in yeah. living memory, um, uh, or in you know it's it's been a while. Um, but um, but uh, you know I I would caution against the, this over this militarizing this military language and you know there are many things that could could go wrong it wouldn't be the army's fault if it did yeah uh, there's a lot we don't know i think people have a, a tendency to overstate their knowledge of uh, of what's happening they overstate the use of data uh, you know they compare compare infection data across countries which they should absolutely not do because testing is very different uh, mortality data is easier to compare since we're now using fairly standardized methods um as a you know we're not the, the data do not infer causality like we know that people in the uk for example the, the death the mortality rates are measured on people dying with covid but not necessarily from covid in germany it's the same so you could probably not 100 percent you could probably make some comparisons um uh, on uh, of those data but mortality rates are very backward looking because they they usually refer to people who got infected several weeks before they contracted the virus so it, it is essentially in terms of real-time dynamics a fairly backward-looking indicator um so it's um you know i think we we got to be more, more more cautious but yes the uk has a has had an uh, a fast vaccine approval uh it was the first country in the world to start vaccination um, but the rollout hasn't been as fast as people wanted to either. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are problems even in a centralized system like the UK, um, because many of the you know, pharmacies that could, in theory, deliver are not set up for this purpose. Yeah. You know, you need a cabin, you need a, yeah, you need a chair <laughs> where somebody sits, and you need, you know, you need minimal facilities yeah. that are not necessarily uh, present. So it's, it's, you know, it's it, the idea of testing, you know, a million people a day. Uh, I think we're still a long, a long way away from that. Oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, Claire, um, Paige, tell me, uh, you this week, uh, obviously, we talk about vaccination and the politics, and it's, it's hugely important. And we're not going to talk about U.S. politics this week oh, because okay. you know this, that was this, my this next is, question. This is for others. We could, we could endlessly <laughs> oh, talk about this. Um, there is a European angle to be talked about, but but yeah. maybe we, we maybe do this, this. Maybe we do this some some other time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, but the other big thing that happened, not necessarily this week, but during the during oh, the winter break, the is the China. Break. Uh, the EU-China Investment Agreement, yeah. CAI. Um, and so tell us about it. What should we think about? Now, we haven't seen the actual thing, uh, so it's, it's hard to actually say what it is. Yeah. But from what we know, is it a good thing or not? Well, we wrote that it's not necessarily, probably not, absolutely not, in my view, a good thing for the EU. Um, it does open up certain sectors, so it's important to talk about that first Uh why the EU would sign on to it in the first place. So you've got financial services, electric vehicles, 
there's uh, telecommunications and cloud services, and then um, of particular interest to France, actually private hospitals and healthcare. So more European investment is going to be permitted in these sectors now, albeit it's quite in quite a limited way in some of them. Uh, telecommunications, for example, still capped at 50%, which means you would have to do a joint venture, which means all of these provisions on technology transfer. I mean, they can't even seem to enforce it in Europe if you look at Huawei uh, firing people in Munich for refusing to reverse engineer Cisco technology. So I don't know how they plan to enforce that in China. I would know more about it, except that, as you mentioned, uh, the text of the deal is not really accessible right now. So it's difficult to report on it. And that was one of the chief criticisms when it was negotiated was that it was done very much like in contrast to Brexit. Uh, it was a lot of it was really done in secrecy. And nobody knows why Macron was participating in the final EU-China leaders meeting. Um, there was just this not the same spirit of transparency that there was with the Brexit trade deal. And so the EU has taken a lot of heat for this, um, in large part due to the human rights violations that are going on in Xinjiang right now and in Hong Kong. There's all of these concerns about human rights. And some commentators, some of my favorite commentators have pointed out that, you know, while the EU is saying that this agreement is sectoral and it's, you know, being negotiated separately from human rights and rule of law issues with Beijing, everything that happens that China does this year is going to be viewed through the prism of this agreement. And then I don't know. I would actually like to hear your thoughts on the transatlantic aspect of it because I have a tendency to go a little bit too rah 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 with the American angle sometimes. But the EU has taken a lot of heat for what's seen as a snub to um, President-elect Joe Biden. Kind of rejected calls for a coordinated approach and moved ahead on this on its own. And so I, you know, we had spoken about this before and absolutely agree that European strategic autonomy should not require the EU to ask permission before it signs a trade deal. But it's undeniable that there is going to be an impact on the transatlantic relationship because this deal was signed. So maybe you can share a little bit about how you think it might impact uh, the transatlantic relationship or what maybe Merkel was thinking when she pushed for this deal. I mean, they certainly used the opportunity to do this now because the, you know the old administration is is you know is is no longer focused as as we see certainly no longer focused on foreign policy, and the new administration is not uh, not installed yet. So this is a this is an effective po uh, policy vacuum. And I also believe the EU should not first ask the US when it signs a trade deal. So of, of the many criticisms we have of this agree that that isn't one of them. Mm -hmm. The fact that they did it did it themselves and that they used an opportune moment is, you know, that's politics. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's, that's fine. Uh, you know, I have grave reservations about the human China's human rights uh, abuses and how we should uh, approach it. This is very much mercantilist mm -hmm. uh, because we do, we do it because it's good for us. Um, that's not that's not what we mean by strategic autonomy. Strategic autonomy doesn't mean we do it without the US. Strategic autonomy means we we uh, we define a set of strategies in our external relations, and surely for the EU, the human rights, uh, respect of democracy and human rights, it must be you know at the very top of that. Um, 
And it isn't the case because for mercantilism, you don't need a strategy. Mm-hmm. Mercantilism is what happens if you don't have a strategy. <laughs> you know, mercantilism is when Macron takes the French businessman on a trip to China. This is what Helmut Kohl did, what, what German chancellors did. Yeah. They basically um, have been promoting bilateral trade. Um, that's not a strategy. Uh, a strategy would certainly be to have a, um, you know, for the EU to have a greater international role. That's a strategy to have, you know, to, to do trade deals only with countries that observe human rights. That would be a strategy. But any strategy, no, uh, implies that you make sacrifices. Uh, there wouldn't be a strategy otherwise. And the sacrifice the EU would probably have to make is to trade a bit less, mm-hmm. to have a bit less of a surplus in your trading relationship. I don't think this is a trade uh, a sacrifice the EU is willing to make. Therefore, I'm not sure this is strategic autonomy at all. I, you know, the, on, the only sort of the thing that's different is that they're no longer... Uh, talking to the US about it. <laughs> now, what will the Biden administration do? Um, you know, there are different you know, people in that, ad- but there will be different people in that administration who will probably not agree on China. There is not a, you know, it does not at this moment look to me like the Biden administration will have a will have a clear-cut view on on this. So we will have to see what the Biden's administration position is. The UK is certainly much more in the in the camp that is opposed to China, that is that is that would not have and the UK would have vetoed that deal. And the people in the UK have said they would have vetoed that deal. So um, you know, basically telling us that he is already a gulf opening up. And I would think, you know, if I had to, you know, place an expectation that the Biden administration would also be significantly more skeptical about relations with China than than uh, than the EU, yeah. um, I would think there would be quite a lot of consistency in the approach to China between the Trump and the Biden administration. Yeah. Uh, now, people don't want to talk about you know any sort of Trump administration <laughs> things that that might be you know that this is now time to vilify everything. But, oh, yeah. but the, the Biden administration will not depart from everything the Trump administration did, and that will be one of them. Um, they will certainly you know try to be co- co- more coherent, and that would obviously be welcome. Um, and I also agree that one cannot be completely confrontational to China because, you know, the if if we, if we wanted to have an effective global climate change agenda, that will require yeah. a degree of uh, of uh, of cooperation with China, not just a purely adversarial, adversarial rea- uh, relationship. Uh, so those those two. Uh, different viewpoints will have to be reconciled in some some sort of way, and that will will require a fairly uh, sophisticated strategy that isn't black or white, but it will require uh, a respect for human rights. If we take that, and, and you know, then, then it will basically uh, would have to involve international uh, multilateral organizations. It would have to, you know, it would have to. Um, uh, you know, it would have to involve a very fine-tuned trade policy that isn't just all-out sanctions, but it would probably, you know, also would 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 work on the basis of incentives, uh, and not just uh, not just not just in terms of sanctions. Um, so that that's something that has yet to be uh, evolved, and, and it is still possible that the EU and the US will ultimately agree on a joint strategy. But yeah, sure, the EU did its, you know, it 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 used an opportunity, it used the power vacuum, it did, did its own thing. I don't think that will be the approach the Biden administration will take. Um, so there will, I, th- I think there will be a 
division on this on this on this on this issue um and you know i think the um uh, this will probably inform our 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 policy i i hope that the the those in the eu who do um devise that strategy know what they're doing and i'm not entirely sure and i think it's a very narrow a very narrow approach it's very based on trade the logic of trade on uh, you know it's 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 uh, um, you know when when i hear commission officials talk about this it's it's done on a basic very narrow bureaucratic framework that basically we've agreed this 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 procedure we've agreed that the areas in which we're going you know we're going we're going we're getting a step closer to that um and it is doesn't look very much it doesn't look at all at human rights um uh, in this uh, so and, and i think that will be um um i think that's the achilles heel of that agreement i think um I would just add, I mean, this is the nature of a, a strategy, a whole strategy, rather than being in a reactive game and just doing reactions to each, each other, which sort of the basis of game theoretical considerations. We need to get out of that framework and ask what the European Union wants to define as its own strategy and has to be coherent in its own policy world and not necessarily per sector, but really across per sector with China, not always looking at what is China doing and how can we get them to cooperate, but actually how does it go across all our different sectors within the EU, within our policy areas? How can we stay coherent and um, and don't risk too many ruptures with our values? Because that's, that's ultimately, I mean, if we are talking about the European Union, the union of values, how do we get, how do we make sure that we're not trespassing these boundaries too much? And how do we make sure that this doesn't turn out to be just a mercantilist uh, project? I mean, these are considerations that we have to do for ourselves rather than only going towards what is in the interplay in the relationship and only in that way, in that sense. Yeah. And you can see too, like I will acknowledge the EU did manage to get some very landmark concessions from China. And so the first step towards upholding those values, you could make the argument to play devil's advocate that something like a panel review for violations of uh, labor practices could help establish the foundation to move forward on separate outside mechanisms to sanction China for forced labor in Xinjiang. Or um, the commitment they got from China to report subsidies is also a really good and important step forward and something that the U.S. has not been able to do yet. But again, there's limitations in everything. And I just would really wish that we were able to scrutinize this deal a little bit more closely because in the area of subsidies and transparency, for example, uh, manufacturing and industry are not included in this. And these sectors are the most subsidized in China, as we wrote. So... It's kind of like a one step forward, two steps back situation sometimes in that you're making marginal progress, but then it comes at the cost of your international reputation and some of your most important alliances. I mean, I personally, this is a little bit petty, I guess, but I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how they plan to get this past European Parliament, because from what I've seen some MEPs tweeting, it's going to be, um, I'm not, I don't want to swear, <laughs> but it's going to be a, quite a spectacle when it comes time to ratify it, which I think is 2022 under the French um, Council of the European Union presidency. And so that's maybe one final question I have is, do you think European Parliament is going to actually put its foot down this time? Do you think there's any opportunity here for them to flex their muscles? Or is it just going to be a lot of posturing and hot air and hyperventilating without anything actually really changing? 
I have yet to see a, a situation where the European Parliament puts its foot down on a on a question of high moral <laughs> principles. In, in the end, um, you know, it would be it would be great if they did this, uh, um, but you know, we have seen that ultimately national interest will prevail if the you know if the Spanish Prime Minister calls up all the Spanish MEPs in the past that usually did the trick. Um, the EPP is beholden to the CDU. Uh, the liberal lib, liberal MEPs are beholden to Macron, um, the Greens will, will oppose it. Some 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 of the uh, you know li- liberals will 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 oppose it, but it, 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 it's hard to get an, an actual majority against this um, this deal. Well, it depends on the on obviously the, the text and the how the how the how the discussion how the discussion works. You know where I'm I'm really skeptical is that China will will comply with these panel panel yeah. agreements. The, the history of that is not good. Now I don't exclude that China might change, and people say that, but you know this is not a, a, a regime that 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 respects multilateral advice. Yeah. Um, and um, this is this is not um, you know the EU should not overemphasize the idea that when it deals with a non-democratic regime that these type of arrangements these type of soft arrangements are um, are working I mean, even with Brexit I mean even in the concept of the UK uh, there are rules of panels and their regulatory discussions and 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 arbitration procedures in the in this in this treaty but in the end nothing will stop a sovereign nation to do what it wants. Uh, that is the same as particularly the case with a country like China that is dictated centrally. Um, so I think one would probably have to come up with a bit more than that. But the, for the for the parliament to block this, yeah, it's possible, but I, I would not bet on this. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Until next time.